back to the Trees and Nylon podcast. I am your host, Trees and Nylon. You can call me Trees. And I am joined today by the technical clothing enthusiast, consultant, art director, stylist, man with the vision, truly. It is Graham. Yes? Yeah, you can go with that. No, no, no. You, you, say, it for me. you say it one more time for me. Say it one more time. Graham. Graham. Yeah. It's Graham. Sorry, you know, me, me and my American tongue can't really get it right the first try. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to try your last name. You said gone is how some people say it. Gone. Like Vaughn, yeah. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My parents were, were definitely trying to play a prank on me with the name <laughs> situation. But, just know, laughing there laughing. <laughs> yeah. After this many years, you're just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I understand. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And thank you uh, for putting up with my blunder right there. Uh, so that's all good. Thanks for the, the lengthy intro. Yes, of course. Well, you have you have a very lengthy bio to read from. So I appreciate that. I should just put like plate spinner. I think that would probably be easier. <laughs> plate spinner? That's pretty good. Yeah. I like that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I need to go switch that up. Good. I'll be expecting that after this podcast is over. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> well by the end of this podcast i will be able to say your name correctly so forgive me um i'm in the moment right now just trying it as we go along um graham graham yeah. yep could you tell the people i've obviously been over a little bit of your bio but before we jump into the whole show tell the people a little bit about mm-hmm. who you are what you do why they should be listening to this episode this is the shark tank go ahead and give your pitch right now um okay where do i start um i've been in this business that we call fashion and and creativity and clothing for a little while now and i've kind of some people kind of dub me a bit of a creative uh i guess swiss army knife i do a few different things in a few different ways and help brands to kind of bring their their the brand to life in, in via visuals, via um, strategy, via design elements as well. I just do a lot of different things in one, but for different clients, I have to do different things. It's, it's a bit mm-hmm. of difficult thing to bring into like one sort of elevator pitch yeah. as it were. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, creative consultant, I think it covers it essentially. Sweet. There you go. And very then, industry, yeah. very industry answer. I love to see it. <laughs> I wear a lot of hats. Yeah. I, I I hold a lot of roles. That's good. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that I and I do wear a lot of hats as well. <laughs> yeah, and he does wear a lot of hats as well. Uh, well, this is the Trees and Nylon podcast, and we will get to hats eventually. But yeah. the question at the top of the episode is: Would you like to talk about trees or nylon first? I want to talk about trees first. Very good. Many people do. Talking about trees, we're going to be working through a past, present, future progression with all of these, with both of these topics, I guess. So go ahead and tell me about how you got started enjoying nature or maybe not enjoying just, uh, I think a lot of people just go out into nature naturally as a kid without like truly appreciating it. So I don't know, maybe that doesn't apply to you, but you have the floor. Yeah, I think that's kind of true in a way. Like, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to grow up in a, a small town in the West Midlands where it's, it's in a place called Shropshire, which is a huge kind of like shire in England, um, which kind of borders Wales. And that area has some incredible nature and, and, and surrounding areas of, outside of those satellite towns um, where I was lucky enough to grow, with, uh, grow up within proximity of wa- walking distance or at least riding distance to some of those locations and some of those places. Mm-hmm. So even as a kid, you know, we would go up to 
places like uh, the Rikin, in, in, uh, which is a famous kind of, it's not a mountain, it's just a big hill, but it kind of has a significance in that area. And yeah. we would go up there on our mountain bikes. And then later, as we became teenagers, we would go up there and drink and get fucked up and, you know, do all that Sick. shit in the woods. <laughs> Standard teenage sort of, you know, protocol. And mm-hmm. then, you know, then I moved to London. And as a, as a young, uh, I guess, like, what, 19, 20, something like that. And then it was all about the city for a while. And I kind of forgot about nature and forgot what it meant to me a little bit. Mm. You know, prior to me moving to London, I'd also been like, crazy and skateboarding and snowboarding and stuff as well. And, you know, that, that connection to sort of, I guess the outdoors through that was something that when I came to London, you know, you, I was going to university at that point studying uh, um, sonic art and music production. And you kind of get absorbed into that, that whole process of being at university. And that's also, you know, the nightlife side of things as well as the studying mm-hmm. and also having to work as well, because, you know, London's expensive and, I still had to work like 25, 30 hours a week just to keep on mm. top of things. So you didn't, I didn't have a lot of time um, for, for quite a while. And finishing uni, you know, you, you come out of that. And again, you're still under that pressure to make your way and pay for things, even though I was still trying to do my thing in music for a while. And mm. I, I think you then at that point reach uh, you know, a point where you're like, okay, I am missing something. There's a balance that's off. And slowly but surely, I realized what it was that was my proximity to nature had been completely skewed. Mm-hmm. And I think slowly but surely over the last few years, I've got that back in, in a big way. And now it's such an important integral part of my life. If I don't spend time in the forest every week, whether that's on a bike, whether that's trail running or something, then I, my whole head is out of whack. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how that relationship has developed. You know, I spent, like I said, a long time of city dwelling and not being able to get to nature as easy. And then you start to realize that when you have that back, how difficult it must be for a lot of people. And they probably don't even know they're out of balance. Mm-hmm. But I think having that proximity and that uh, closeness to nature really gives us as, a, as, a, as, as animals a balance. You know, ultimately, we, we, you know, we are, call ourselves civilized, but we are animals. And we need to retain a bit of a touch point with the more natural parts of, of the world. Um, and I think just, you know, if everyone was able to spend like, you know, half an hour walking through a forest and just hearing the forest once a week, it would give them something so much more interesting than, than running around, you know, like the city streets and stuff like that. But I think you have to go through a process to find that yourself sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, listening to what you're saying about, I mentioned this on the last, uh, podcast that's yet to come out with field mag, but and actually his name is. Graham. Okay. Just putting that out there. And your name is not Graham. But anyway, it sounds like Graham. Kind of. It's just that's yeah. a sidebar. Um, <laughs> there was a post that I mentioned. It was a Reddit post that someone made. It's kind of gone, it's done the rounds on the internet where someone said, uh, I start crying when I get taken out of densely populated areas. Like oh, they really? say that they say, I'm I'm reading the post right now. It's like, oh, I've been living in Manhattan since I was young. Whenever I leave densely populated areas, like nature just seems so deadly and alien to me. I feel so scared and alone and afraid. Uh, just like truly the industrial revolution and its consequences had its peak right there in that post. Because I think <laughs> yeah. most people, most people feel the way that we feel, you and me, where it's yeah. like, if I don't go out in nature every once in a while, you know, I'm cloudy head, you just feel like something's off in you. You know, you ha- you get that desire yeah. to go on a hike or go camping or trail running wherever it may be um and i guess there there are some people that just 
are afraid of nature or it, it seems like for this person, they're afraid of it because they never experienced it. Um, yeah. And now that's just, think, they're too far yeah. gone basically. I think it's the opposite of what we're saying, right? I mean, yeah. did you grow up with nature around you? Yeah, yeah, I did all the time. Yeah. Like every day, I just went outside. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you don't have that, then it's the opposite of how we feel to an extent. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you feel more comfortable in that environment rather than going out to nature. And that's where it starts to feel alien. But, you know, as, as human beings, we evolve over time, you know, and I think what we, what we were thinking when we were like 20 versus what we're thinking when we were 40 can be completely different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we have to give ourselves the ability to adapt sometimes as well. Even things that feel scary the first time you do them, the more you do them, the less scary they become. And I think, you know, if, if, if that helps anybody who's feeling that way, I don't know, mm-hmm. but, um, I can, definitely, I can relate to definitely. it for sure, you know? Um, and I think, you know, there's another level of, of like being in nature. Like I was, um, we were shooting, um, a campaign in Tenerife earlier this week mm-hmm. and there was this area we were in, which was an abandoned leper colony. Oh, and it's, it's, it's an amazing location and it was never used. They actually cured leprosy before it got used, oh, which nice. is kind of strange. Yeah. Very but, cool we were shooting there at dusk and all of a sudden the light just dropped and it was pitch black. And all of a sudden you're out in the middle of nowhere with all these like mm-hmm. spooky, like empty mm-hmm. kind of like dormitories yeah. and, and shit like that. And all of a sudden like, it's like, okay, I can't see anything now. My phone had died. Didn't have any sort of battery to put a torch on. And you remember what it's like to have to sit there and just let your eyes readjust. And mm-hmm. it is quite frightening though for a minute or two, you know, you just all of a sudden get a little bit of like, Oh, but what if this happens? Or what if that happens? And you're just like, Oh, shut up. You know, you just need to chill out and just let your body adjust to it, get comfortable. And then you start being able to like pick out patterns and textures and paths and then you can see again. It's yeah. kind of mad, you know. And I think that's a, a similar thing happens with with your um, your mind as you, as you kind of adapt as you grow older as well. You know, what scares you at one point might not scare you down the line. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, going hammock camping, if you've ever been, is scary the first time, you know, because you're used yeah. to sleeping in a tent where you're fully covered. And even though it's a flimsy piece of nylon that's protecting you, it does yeah. feel like you have some sort of protection against the natural elements. People can't just stare at you while you sleep. But if you're in a hammock, you're basically just out in the open. Uh, yeah. And I was scared the first time. But then after that, you know, you just you build up tolerance. You realize that you'll be OK and or that you think yeah. you'll be okay and you just kind of get over it eventually. Yeah. But I think for you, that's, that's a fair thing to say because you you're in a country where there's things that can kill you. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Yeah. I do live you know, somewhere where there are bears and mountain lions and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I remember hearing you and Ali talk about you'd seen the bear somewhere or something like on a mm-hmm. podcast, I think. Yeah. yeah. That bears scare the shit out of me. Oh, really? I mean, they should. Yeah. They should. <laughs> yeah. Because they're the gnarliest things in the fucking world, man. Like mm-hmm. those things, like they can run fast, they can eat anything. And it's they can like, climb, they can run, they can swim. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they can literally do it all. They're like the ultimate, yeah. like, you know, I guess like secret agent of animals in terms <laughs> of like, there's deadly, you know. Yeah. Um, and if you catch one in the wrong mood, it's, yeah, it's horrifically mm-hmm. scary. So, like, exactly you have those things to be scary. I mean, England, we don't really have that. We don't have yeah, cows and people. <laughs> yeah. Or angry farmers, maybe sometimes. Yeah, exactly. You know, cause we're not allowed to wild camp technically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard but, some stories. Yeah. You know, we, we, we still do it, but you know, we're not mm-hmm. technically supposed to, you can in Scotland. That's a whole different process. And, and mm-hmm. Scotland's an amazing place to visit. If you get a chance, I don't know if you have. 
but it's uh, and Wales as well. There's just incredible locations to go and camp. I don't know if you can free uh, wild camp in in, uh, in Wales. I'm not sure actually. I can't remember. But yeah, Scotland's definitely a place to just you can just go anywhere on that, and it's amazing. Nice. Yeah. Um, uh, Wales is like England. You can't wild camp without permission of landowner, technically. Okay. There is like a loophole. So basically, if you get caught and you get you technically get a warning and if you move on there's nothing they can do um but if you stay mm. that's apparently uh, aggravated trespassing if you oh. come back to the spot and they have to speak to you again that's apparently aggravated trespassing or some shit like that huh. and that's when it gets more serious so uh yeah, so yeah okay it's good good to know that whale that i wasn't sure on that one there you go i oh, know you know <laughs> exactly um oh shoot what were we talking about oh bears i wanted to mention this about bears as well uh before we move on where I live, there's only black bears, which are the nicest of the bears, I guess, besides like a koala, since I guess <laughs> a you know, koala bear. Um, yeah. And I've there, there was a moment where I was hiking. I don't know. This might have been what you heard me talking about, Ali, with, but yeah. we were hiking, me and my friends, and one of them just crossed the trail 20 feet in front of us, a mom and oh. her cubs, and just they're just walking around eating berries off of bushes and stuff. Um, because in these national parks where we saw the bear, they know that the humans are not there to hurt them, so they're not really scared of us. And as long as yeah. we're not in between the mom and her cubs, you're probably gonna be fine. I mean, obviously, it's a wild right. animal, so you get too close, something's gonna happen. But if you're viewing from a distance, you'll be fine. Pretty interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's I've, I've heard that the sort of more. I mean, they're still pretty gnarly when they get going, but oh, yeah, definitely. About getting any if they've got cubs with them or something as well, mm-hmm. that can be quite that's, a sketchy. That's the scary. Seeing like a seeing a bear cub is probably the scary, scarier than seeing an actual bear because you don't know where the bear is yet, but you know it's close by. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But grizzlies are the are the one right, and they're up mm-hmm. a bit further north, right? Or yeah, that's that's your Montana, Wyoming, Alaska, like all that yeah. area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a terrifying creature. <laughs> <They definitely laughs> I mean, I are. love them. They're incredible, but yeah, they're terrifying. I think they can only run at like 40 miles an hour or something crazy or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just gigantic too. They're huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool stuff. And, um, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's move on now to the present. Um, you've mentioned already you go outside. You try to get outside at least once a week. What are some activities you're doing? Um yeah, I guess that's uh, the question. What are some activities you're doing out there? Yeah, I mean, cycling a lot is is a, is a key one for me. I mean, the the, the forest and, and I guess the lanes around sort of Essex and Hertfordshire and around those areas, it's, that's kind of my gym, basically. That's where I go and, and mm-hmm. just burn shit off and, and think about stuff and, you know, and just get everything out of my head and get it sorted. And like, if I don't have the time to do it, because it's quite time consuming to do it on, on the level I like to mm-hmm. um, like, you know, I like to get out for a minimum of two hours if I can uh, and just, you know, get a good sort of 60 K smashed out. Um, and if I can't do that because of work commitments or whatever, I, I try and get, you know, just a good sort of eight, eight to eight K in on a trail run or something mm-hmm. like that wow. um, around Epping forest and places like that. But I mean, I, I wish I could run further actually, but, my knees just don't like the idea of it anymore, which mm. is why cycling is a bit more appropriate. But um, yeah, I had surgery in one of my knees about oh. seven, seven years ago, something like that. And since oh, well. then, um, what for? Anything? If like, you don't mind me asking, um, meniscus tear. Mm. I tore. Classic. 
I tore both my ACLs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At separate I times, mean, separate times. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it should have been a real major thing, to be honest. I think I should still, I mean, I can run further. I just will feel it the next day. Yeah, massively. yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't really want to injure myself if I can avoid it. But you know, mm-hmm. before that, I, you know, I ran the Athens Marathon, which wow. so it's it's frustrating not to be able to do those kind of distances anymore. And it's not a cardio thing really, and it's, it's not to do with fitness. It's just yeah, the, the aches of it the next day. Yeah, and I get a lot of um, when it's really cold, it just it just aches, man. And I got told that by the doctor when he did the surgery. He's like, yeah, you're gonna feel a bit of like arthritis kind of pain in that when it gets cold. Really? Um, yeah, which I don't know. Maybe it's an age thing. Maybe it's uh, just what particular kind of surgery it was or particular area that I damaged. I don't know. Mm. I mean, it's cartilage based, right? So isn't that what deteriorates when you get arthritis? Yeah. 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 So I guess it's kind of related. Um, but yeah, it sucks. But it's still. We still got biking. Biking's probably easier on the knees, right? much easier in, in total yeah but like i said it's just more of a time investment but um but yeah it's also a social thing to it as well i guess um you know i i hang out with a lot of guys that that cycle we have like cycling friends or buddies or whatever that i maybe don't see that much outside of being on a bike but they're just mm. they become close friends regardless um and it's nice that you have a community outside of other areas that just is purely around cycling but you can talk to people and, and you know, have a lot of dialogue with them about different things going on in your life and stuff. And it, yeah. it kind of acts for, for many people like a bit of a, almost like a counseling session in some respects, you know, just talking stuff through on a bike's different to doing it face to face. Interesting. When uh, you're riding side by side, so you're both looking ahead. So yeah. talking about stuff that's kind of <laughs> delicate, I, th- I think uh-huh. has a, it comes out easier that way. I agree. Yeah. You know, it, it's harder to look someone in the face and say something yeah more that's quite personal, personal yeah. or deep or sad i understand totally yeah so um so there's that side of it as well which i think is quite nice but yeah and i sometimes i like writing in like social groups but at the same time i really enjoy writing on my own because it helps me sort and compartmentalize all the things i have going on in my head and like you know it's, it just helps to get things straight and I feel so much better afterwards as well. It's a, it's a weird thing because some days you really don't want to go out. You just feel like, oh, it's, it's nice. Do I have the time? Do I have the energy for it? But then I do it, push myself out there, and I feel great afterwards. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, that's also the thing. Habit habit forming, like developing yeah. a habit for something. It's just super hard at the beginning. But, you know, once you do start working out in any regard, whether it's biking, lifting weights, bouldering, whatever these people are doing these days, yeah. Um, you just, you are, uh, your, what is it? Metabolism is better. You sleep better. You drink more water. Like you just live a healthier life. Like the people who say, sadly, the people who say like, if you just work out, you start feeling better about yourself. They're right. Like it's really, it sucks that they're right, but they are right. You know? And you just, it's hard to take those steps and develop those habits to, you know, just make yourself feel better day by day. Exactly. I think it also depends on your reasons as well. You know, I Mm -hmm. think some people do it from a a vanity perspective and you know, that's fine. I mean, every, everyone has that a little bit of that in them, I guess, to extend Mm -hmm. as well. Um, but I think it's, and there's also a pain barrier you have to go through with any level of exercise or kind of activity, I guess, where you're learning still and you're still, your body's adapting. But I think a lot of people that they give up because they don't like going through that pain barrier and they, Mm -hmm. they don't know it's going to get easier for them. Mm-hmm. you know like when i first started cycling properly like you know i just find it so hard and absolutely exhausting and 
thinking, wow, man, is this going to get easier? And it does because your body starts training itself and adapting and, and muscles build mm-hmm. in those areas. You need them to build. And exactly. you, know it, you know, you're doing 150 K or whatever and, and, you know, smashing those kind of distances and, and loving every minute of it. And yeah, feeling exhausted when you get back, but the ability to hit, hit those milestones gives you such a, an amazing feeling, you know, and, um, you know, some of our friends, they just go on these crazy ass long rides. Some friends recently, they went from Manchester to London, which I think is about 350 kilometers or something like that. Wow. Um, in a day and in a day. Know, yeah. In a day. So it was like sort of dawn to dusk type of thing. Um, wow. which is a feral, you know, schlep in the saddle as it were. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And you know, friends of mine in Denmark go on these like sort of 250 K routes from like Denmark to Germany and stuff like that as well. And I think hit, giving yourself those kind of targets and those kind of like challenges is, is mm-hmm. also something that's super interesting in terms of mindset as well, like beating those things and giving yourself those, those uh, targets to achieve and beat. Yeah. I think also having a community around you is something that's very important as well. Yeah. Like you were talking about people to talk to on your bike rides. Um, mm-hmm. I've just started bouldering recently and um, having people at the gym who are just willing to say like, Hey, do you need some help or you know, yeah. you, you, there's this thing called flagging, you know what that is. And I was like, Oh, I didn't, I don't know what that is. And they just helped me out with stuff like that. Just little things yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. nice to have a community of people. And now I take all my friends bouldering and I, yeah. you know, show them the ropes and they, they've all fallen in love with it as well. So it's nice just to have people to go with and people to talk to about it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I totally agree. I mean, bouldering is something that I actually haven't really got into. I love the idea of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to start just before um, COVID kicked in, uh, actually. Yeah. And then everything closed around me, and I haven't really got a chance to kind of get my head around into doing it. But, um, I mean, I do a lot of kind of, I, I guess, body weight, upper body stuff anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that is the ultimate sort of upper body workout. Yeah, it's, definitely. Uh, it's, it's crazy, right? I mean, cardio is great. And I think, you know, the amount of cardio I get done is, is, is completely fine. I'm happy with that, but yeah, I'd like to do some stuff for like that. But in the future, that's one thing maybe I would like to start doing if I can find the time for it. Yeah. Um, well, Hey, come on down to Georgia. I will, uh, <laughs> I'll show you the ropes. You know, I can do a V4. So I'm basically a pro at this point. <laughs> Sick. That's great. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be getting some tips. I mean, Absolutely. yeah, I mean, Georgia might be a little bit of a stretch for me to get there for the first couple of sessions, but I'll, I'll <laughs> I think we can make it work. Practice him. Yeah. You can just, <laughs> yeah, you can exactly. write it all off. <laughs> mm, that's true. Yeah. Research R and D. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> um, so besides Georgia, we can move on to the future now. Where else are you going to go in the future? In countries, hikes you want to go on, anything like that? Uh, yeah, I actually do want to go to Montana. Yeah, you should. It's amazing. Yeah. It's beautiful there. Yeah. I, uh, I think like a lot of people, I've been watching Yellowstone and, uh, that's a pretty, um, it's amazing scenery when you, when you watch that show and you see the, the, the landscape there, it's just like, wow, it's another world. And I watched the kind of spinoff to that show, mm-hmm. 1883, which I actually preferred, um, in many ways, it's just a lot more like frontier based and like really shows how difficult it was for those people to get across America at that time and all the challenges that came with it. But the landscapes across that series are just insane. And obviously it finishes up in Montana, but yeah, that element of real vacuumous nature where you can just disappear is, 
yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awe inspiring. So I'd like to see stuff like that. I want to do more traveling around Japan as well. Um, mm, mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure of going quite often with work, obviously nice. not during the pandemic, but prior and, and recently when it was there in August where it was like a billion degrees, it was so hot. Um, but yeah, getting to go out of the cities more and, and explore nature in Japan, I think is something I really want to do. I actually want to take my kids there next year if mm. I can. And um, I found a company that does a, you know, the old four by four with a tent on the roof rental. Oh, very so, cool. Um, yeah. So that's, that's in the planning at the moment. Of course. I mean, I Japan's on every, off. everyone in this scene, they all want to go to Japan. I personally, I've been, I went to Tokyo and I haven't been to the actual forested parts or nature yeah. parts of Japan, except for the shrines inside the city. And I would love to go back there too. So yeah, I'll hit yeah, you right on a four by four if you're willing. Definitely, man. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, I think you never fail to be um, inspired by being there. I think that's mm-hmm. the key thing for me. I mean, even I would probably make, make sure I went even every year if it wasn't work related, just to go and, and soak something up there. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, definitely I, I managed to travel out of Tokyo a little bit this time when I was there. I was there like eight, nine days. I went mm-hmm. to, the, to the beach um, one of the days, went we shot actually around Tokyo Bay. We did the campaign for Descent All Terrain and Cotisio. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was around Tokyo Bay, this incredible location where it's like a, an art installation, which was a bunch of platforms all laid up together. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of people go there in the morning, they climb those steps and they sit at the top and they just take the view in, which is just sea and, and nature breathe a lot and then just come down and, and, and go to work and do their thing. And it's, I think it's kind of that process when people go there. So it's a pretty sick spot. I see like, mm. I don't really feel like we have things like that in this country. Um, but uh, I think there's, there's elements like that. I mean, I managed to see, which was great, but yeah, I really want to go a bit further afield. I mean, I've been to Kyoto. That was amazing. Mm. But again, that's still a city, even though it's a lot smaller than Tokyo. Um, but yeah, I think getting out to the nature side of it is something I really want to do. Yeah. Um, there was one place, my mom used to live in Japan and everyone who's listened to the podcast before, just turn it off for like a solid two to three minutes because I'm going to tell the story again, all right? My mom used to live in Japan <laughs> and she lived in a small town by the ocean side. And when I went there, I went I went there with her um, and she took me there, just showed me around, showed me where her house used to be. It's been knocked down since then. They built like a ni- like a nicer building, but uh, she okay. took me to a couple of shrines by the ocean side. And it was very, it was a very different ocean than I've experienced because there's different oceans. People don't know this. You can turn the podcast back on everyone. There's like, <laughs> or beaches, I should say, not oceans. There's like Florida, this is might be an American perspective, but there's like Florida where it's like, you know, the, the, the sand beaches where there's thousands of people just like tanning and playing in the waves and stuff. I feel like Mm -hmm. there's more of a, um, like a Hawaiian style beach where it's basically just there for surfing and there isn't really much beach. It's mostly just rocks and then just huge waves. I feel like there's more of a Mediterranean beach, which is kind of rocky and craggly. Um, and I feel like this was something different. This felt more like I was on like a nature preserve or I was like in um, somewhere where I shouldn't be because it was so pristine, so clear, like there was no one there. Um, yeah. Everyone was just kind of just admiring the beach. No one was really down there playing in the water or anything. It was a very different experience for me. Yeah, yeah. And I can, I can imagine. I mean, there's, there's obviously a level of respect for things that 
they have in Japan that we don't have it in the West as well. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of like this, how you treat stuff and how you kind of yeah, look definitely. after the, that environment, whether that's you know urban environment or nature. Um, but I think there is a more ingrained respect for nature in that sense. Mm-hmm. Coming through you, into materials and everything like you know building and, and everything like that as well. Yeah, where do you think that comes from? Like why? Because that's not a sentiment that you're the first person to say. I've I've, I've said it personally yeah. on the podcast before. But why do you think that is? I think it's about elements, like elemental um, parts of when it comes to design as well. Like you know, you, if you notice a lot of. Um, architecture in japan has, has like these concrete elements to it then mm. it will have a natural element matched to it whether mm. that's using wood greenery and, and the concrete so you have this like terra okay. firma you have greenery and you have the wood in between it's almost like you, you're building an ecosystem with with the building yeah and i, I remember when i t- took my wife to japan um and she's from denmark congratulations she, she, on having a wife by the way thank you um but she's she's uh, yeah I, I i do feel blessed she's very tolerant <laughs> of my uh my indulgences when it comes mm. to like cycling and all that kind of stuff so i i said i'd mention her for that so she's going to be that's happy. good um, <laughs> yeah but she she felt like it was there was a similar alignment to the design philosophies that they have in scandinavia there um and she's done a lot of traveling in asia and stuff as well so probably mm. more than me actually um especially like in china indonesia and lots of different areas i am yet to go to Mm-hmm. But um, but she recognized this kind of like kinship with with the sort of design and, and some of the architecture that, that she felt there was a connection to Scandinavia in there. And I think it's those elements of like of concrete, wood and greenery that kind of combine um, to give this sort of aesthetic that feels um, whole from the, you know, ground, wood and tree at the top. So you build, you build yeah. all this, this natural ecosystem with it. Um, I don't really know how better to describe it really, but it's a bit hard to kind of come up with the terms for it, but she definitely felt that there was some kind of like kinship there. Yeah. Um, I like that. Which she hadn't seen in other Asian countries, weirdly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I think there's it's something that's just more, maybe it's a bit more of a spiritual thing possibly. I don't know. Yeah. I was also going to say that too, that it might have to do something with religion that it just, you know, it's, it's ingrained more into the religion to care about nature to some degree. I don't know. I don't know religion's predominant in Japan either, but it just seems more like a more like holistic place for some reason. Yeah, One day I'll definitely. figure it out. Yeah. I think it's hard to summarize really. And, and to mm-hmm. also for those that haven't been there to kind of really put it True. into words. True. But um, yeah, if you're going to, if you're thinking about going, just go. Yeah. And then, I don't know if it's crazy expensive still. It was insane last time I went. But um, actually, my fiance just messaged me last night. She was she was saying like four different places that we've been talking about going, and one of them was Japan. And she said Japan flights are this expensive. And it was like twice as expensive as the other places we want to go. Um because yeah. they just opened up their borders again, too. So yeah. it's gonna be the most expensive, probably. It's been in a long time right now. Yeah, you, you say that. I mean, it was crazy before they opened it. So I don't know whether mm. it's because maybe they were chartering less flights. So it was like a supply and demand thing. Oh, definitely, um, yeah. So maybe now there's more demand. Maybe they'll put more flights on, which maybe true. might bring yeah, the prices down, true. possibly. I don't know. I'm kind of hoping. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, wishful but, thinking. Uh, yeah, but if, you, if you're going to fly there, go to Haneda. It's the one. I mean, that made a difference going to Haneda instead of Merita. 
Oh, really? Um, yeah, it's only like 20 minutes. It's like a 20 minute cab ride into the city after you land in Haneda. Whereas Narita's is oh. a bit long. It's like an hour and a bit train ride. And, and yeah, it's a yeah. Bit but you know, the train ride's involved. cool, you know, you get to pass all yeah, the rice paddies and the, the yeah, suburbs. I think, yeah, to do it once is, is definitely needed. I mean, I've just done it a few there times now. So I think it's, you kind of appreciate the proximity and also getting back there as well. If you've got like a really early flight, it just seems mm. like a bit of a mish. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think if you're thinking about it and if the prices are right, then just go, don't, don't yeah. question it. Pretty cool place. Nice. Um, well, let's move on to the nylon section of the podcast. If you got nothing else to say about the trees portion. That's well, I'm sure you have more to say. Obviously, there's always more to say, but we can yeah, move on sure. now to the uh, to the nylon section. So, tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about how you got started getting dressed, putting on fits. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the, the relationship with nylon in particular started more so with snowboarding. Okay. Uh, so I used to I learned to snowboard on a dry slope which if anyone you know who snowboards will tell you that's a pretty brutal way to learn snowboarding because <laughs> um, there was not a mountain anywhere near me. And at that point, there wasn't really any snow domes. Mm. They, they opened like a couple of years later. But um, so we learned the hard way, really. It was a bunch of us who skateboarded and we decided we wanted to try and figure out, get our way around into, into snowboarding. So it was early doors. Mm-hmm. And some, some of the guys we knew because snowboarding apparel was so expensive, they just started buying like really tough Cordera uh, fabrics and designing their own trousers essentially because you didn't really need like the sort of top part it was more about the trousers and like because that was the bit that you would land on predominantly and get the most punishment so we started creating these pants that had like patches on the back pockets that were built specifically for like landing on your ass essentially when you yeah. like the board slips out from underneath you or whatever and they needed to be super like resistant to that um mm-hmm. den- dendex brush that you had so I think that was my first kind of like foray into like trying and testing technical product. And they were pretty crude to be honest with you. Um, but it was a flex still, you know, they were, we, they were super baggy. We used to wear like North face boots with it. when you know, just before they started releasing the espressos, which everyone started wearing at that point because they were kind of riffing off the, the snowboard boots at the time and then developed the sneaker, um, which kind of looked like a snowboard boot without the actual boot part. Um, and that was, yeah, that's kind of where the obsession started with it, really. And then I guess over the years, when my time in music was kind of more prevalent, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't thinking about the fit side of things so much at that point. I was I was mainly stuck in studios night and day and just making beats and shit like that. I was going to ask, um, what, what did you do in the music industry? Just producer? Yeah, predominantly, yeah. So um, I remember like coming out of college and I like, made my beat real cd and i kind of mailed it out to and this is still a cd you know it tells you how long ago it was um <laughs> i mailed it out to a bunch of labels and only one label got back to me <laughs> but i didn't care because it was xl recordings and i couldn't give a shit about any of the labels to be honest because that for me is still the best record label in the world um and yeah it was a guy called nick huggett who kind of called me up on my phone and was like yeah i'm from uh, lxl moax we really like your stuff you want you to come in and have a meeting and i was just like yo this is crazy <laughs> um at that point they just signed dizzy rascal to uh, another sub label of moax called platinum projects and he was bringing some acts in that were development acts and uh, nick and, and toby who went on to 
worked for Nigo in Japan and wow. then found Camp Cavemt later on. Mm-hmm. That was the, that was the crew that were in that office. Wow. And it was, That's pretty it was cool. interesting times. Yeah, it was pretty dope. I, mean, right I, haven't there. Seen, I haven't seen Toby in a million years, but Nick, I think he had a couple of DMs a few maybe a year or two ago. I can't remember. You know, he's he's still for me was probably the one of the best ARs in the world. <laughs> in the way he he signed people, it wasn't about like he just he just had a natural ability to sign acts that were completely different from each other genre wise, but just amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a bit of a vibe. In that. I remember walking in there for the first time, and there was just like boxes of bathing ape up against the wall, <laughs> yeah, shitloads of of this stuff. And I remember sitting there thinking like, Yo, what's, is this all like stuff he sends for them to wear? Because they were all decked out in bathing ape at the time. Mm. Um, I think I later found out that, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I think it was stuff that was then going to the store. So they were really? sending it to their office, then taking it over to the store. And I believe there was some legal issue with that later down the line. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. Allegedly. The details. Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. <laughs> I don't know the specifics, but yeah. Um, but that was one of the, it was a good time. I remember like, and I would get to work with some of the development acts that Nick and, and Toby were looking at and help them produce some stuff for them and yeah it was it was good and um i learned a lot from those guys actually they were all super switched on um and then as things kind of developed beyond that like toby went to japan and you know you just start kind of going off on different directions and i was starting mm-hmm. to develop acts myself and but weirdly i had to kind of the money was always kind of inconsistent so and i had mm-hmm. a really sweet little setup where i was renting a room in this house with three of the guys and there was a garage downstairs and I kind of built a little studio in this garage mm-hmm. and I really didn't want to lose that because it was a, it was a free studio essentially. So I was like, right, okay, I need to make sure that whatever happens, I can always pay the bills and the rent and that's, I don't lose that studio then because that would be a nightmare. Yeah. So I started working in like some like fashion stores, like part-time and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. you know, that, that those, those, those companies realized that I knew a lot of musicians and stuff. So they were asking me to help them develop, like seeding programs like early doors like this is beyond like way beyond influencer stuff back in the days you know there was no social media or anything it was all on relationships yeah and um and that's kind of how i ended up getting into the fashion marketing side of things and so the next kind of few years i kind of did that on on the more sort of full-time basis like fashion marketing pr strategy and comms things like that mm-hmm. but i always had um a, a more of a sort of I guess it wasn't just about that one element. I always wanted to do other things within that as well. Mm-hmm. So I carried on doing music on the side. So I was always hustling different things at different points. You know, I never had just one job and that was it. And nice. I was always doing mul- multiple things. And, you know, I also sat and listened to a lot of designers that I work with, people like Demir Doma. I would mm-hmm. sit and listen to him talk to the point where I could write interviews for him because I knew how he would answer certain things. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew his tonality really well and how he his philosophy around design and stuff. So, mm. and I had other friends that were like really, really great designers that worked for big houses. And I just always absorbed what they were saying and listened to them a lot. The same way I kind of taught myself how to use music programs. I just, mm. you know, just picked, picked it up and kind of taught myself yeah. with those, with those elements. Um, and at the same time I was doing like all this like PR stuff, working with brands. And I kind of started my own label as well. Um, which is just some t-shirts to start with. And that developed into a more fully fledged brand. And we worked with some really good stores over the over those years. Um, and I learned a lot about all the other elements then, like production, <laughs> like logistics, um, 
design, even though I'm yeah. not a designer really, but I, I learned a lot about it. I mean, I used to create my own CADs, but they were shit. You know, um, I also remember having to explain things to factories a million times because my drawings were so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you, you soak up all these different, you know, even like the finance side of it and things like that, which, you know, some things I wasn't so great at. Um, but, and the art direction stuff comes out of having to do that for my own label. Um, and mm-hmm. knowing how I wanted to, to visualize that and then being able to sort of take that idea and then say, okay, this, this brand, this is how I see that brand. So I want to see if I can do that for them. And it slowly just developed and I stopped doing the brand, which was just soaking up so much of my time and never really making me any money. It, mm-hmm. you know, it all went back into the brand and I ended up like making lots of mistakes, which, you know, I still spend time with like young designers coming through now, if I can help them avoid those mistakes that I made, yeah. I, I always make a point of just trying to help them through those more murky elements of it. Um, but yeah, you learn so much about what not to do. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I look back at it now as like a university of life, you know, it cost me money to do it in the end. It cost me money to close it down, legal stuff, you know, all of those mm-hmm. elements. But I look at it now as like a college education to what I'm doing and what brands yeah. are kind of paying me to do now, if that makes sense. Exactly. So in the end, it kind of worked out. So that, that made sense. So it's a long convoluted story about how I got <laughs> here, but it's, um, yeah, I think it's about just being willing to hustle, to do multiple jobs, work really, really fucking hard mm-hmm. to the point of exhaustion sometimes, but to also keep your eye on the prize and also think about your evolution, about how you're developing forward, where you see yourself in a few years and how you want to get to that point because it's all stepping stones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could have just sat back and go, I, I want to do PR for the rest of my life. And that's fine for a lot of people. I, I just yeah. never had that ability to focus on one thing and one thing only. I would always get too uh, restless with that. Um, and I always felt that I had more to give as well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I tried whatever I could to kind of get into those positions and gain the trust of those, those brands and clients who felt that I could offer that to them. Wow. So I'm glad I asked about music then, because it seems to have all started from the music business. Yeah, it really has. And I think that's the key thing, you know, whether it's skateboarding, which I still feel is one of the most profound influences on my life. Oh, yeah. In in terms of the the culture, the way Mm -hmm. you used to move and navigate a scene at that point, the way it taught you so much about persistence, trying and trying and trying and trying, like, you know, until you learn something. That was the foundation. Um, same with snowboarding as well. And then taking that through into music, I think you, you already have that drive to succeed after you know doing that for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And knowing how to network with people on a good level, you know, with skating, you, you, you create this great big group of friends that's called the yeah. skateboarding community. Mm-hmm. And being able to sort of hang and, and interact with all those guys, lots of different personalities, some troubled, some not, you know, some... Mm-hmm some difficult and, uh, but some are like super talented and you know, it's such a patchwork of, of identities that you kind of, you learn how to be around a lot of different people. And it's the same with music, you know, the, the amount of nights you have to spend out going to clubs and stuff just to sort of listen to what's happening, to speak to people, to network. Yeah. To um, understand the scene, you know, to be a part of it. Yeah. 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 To, to just get things happening. And it was the same when I would visit New York in the early two thousands and stuff as well to do the same thing. You know, we'd go out there with my flatmate at the time who worked for like uh, the promo only, which was like a company that got new records to DJs and stuff. And mm. he would like, you know, it's almost like a kind of early influencer list of DJs basically mm. would get stuff before other people. So they would break these tracks in clubs and stuff like that. Um, and just doing the scene over there as well, it was the same thing. Although I found in, in New York, people were much more open to helping, helping mm. you network. 
Maybe because I was English. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I felt like Exotic. the music industry. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> but I felt like the music industry in the UK at that point hadn't really developed to what it is these days in terms of like, you know, the genres that we have now that were available. I mean, Dizzy broke down a lot of doors. There were people before him that kind of were doing, um, you know, particular, uh, people would say urban music. But I, I don't really like that as a genre label. But yeah, um, we're doing music that were getting doors closed on them um, by A&Rs mm. and, and not giving support. And it made a lot of people frustrated at that early point. But now, you know, I look at the scene now and what happened in that period where Dizzy was breaking is those artists started to develop their own ability through certain, you know, sites like, you know, um, forums. They're able to start building a fan base without the label. And then mm. the power shift happened and the music industry lost a bit of grip on what was going on. Mm. And I feel like that's almost happened to, to fashion as well, in a way, with Instagram really? and stuff like that. Yeah. But all of a sudden, like, people can make a brand without having backing of a mm. huge company. You know, they can, yeah. they can create a demand for their product <clears throat> and they can create a community around it. And those are the positives of social media. I mean, we won't go on to the negatives because it's just long <laughs> and arduous. But, but yeah, there are. And, and yeah. what companies do to those platforms. Because, you know, Instagram then, Instagram now is two different things. Yes, um, very much. The same as Facebook when it started is very different to what it is now. I and mean, slowly but surely they morph into just advertising platforms. But I think, which I think is a huge shame, really. Um, the emphasis is on money, not social networking, yeah. which yeah. is a shame. But I get it. You know, it's corporate sort of takeover. It is what it is. Um, Capitalism as as it, and, in it. Yeah, as much <laughs> as it annoys me, it's like, well someone just needs to start a better thing and hopefully that'll go for a good 10 years before someone kills it. But, um, but yeah, you know, and I think it's, yeah, I can't remember how we got onto this now, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, I yeah, guess it's, I would... a, it's all, all links back to those early, early cultural moments. And I think that's mm -hmm. what puts you into this, into this process and gives you a, also a, a background that has a lot of experience in different things. Yeah. So you can reference like, you know, a look that Beastie Boys had from like 94 versus, you know, what someone is rocking now and like, you know, how that correlates culturally across those generations and how that works. And I think, you know, there's a few, there's a few guys that I, I feel do a similar job um, to me with some of the mm -hmm. clients I work with who have probably similar backgrounds as well, um, yeah. you know, or experience at least. Um, so it's, and it's good that brands are taking, chances i guess on external people like myself in order to help them develop those those ways of, of um, communicating with certain community groups very nice yeah i mean there's still communities out there they're just hard to find hard to get a hold of you know because the the influencers and the you know the money of it all has kind of taken away from um the authenticity of it i think sometimes yeah 100 percent. but also yeah. i think like a lot of kids that I meet now, they, they, they pay a little attention to Instagram really. Um, if they can, These avoid are it. like designers and stuff you're working with or not so much designers, but there's kids working in the industry. And I, and I say kids, mm. it's not really kids. It's like guys that are like, you know, anywhere between 18 to 24, okay. um, kids, you know, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, people coming up basically. And yeah, yeah. I think, I think, you know, they already understand what a broken, element it is to mm -hmm. what we're doing um but again instagram for me now is just a home page you know it's just a website 
Yeah. And you can do a few internal emails on it. There you go. That's what it is. It's a, it's a way of selling your wares, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's um, true. And, and I still think that there's definitely a lost art of actual physical interaction on, on, a, on a one-to-one basis that we, because of now Zoom and everything else, which we don't probably feel need to, to do as much as we used to, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is a shame. And I, I sometimes feel like, you know, when I, when I speak to my staff sometimes, like there's, conversations around like why haven't you just called them and have a conversation that take two minutes rather than having 15 emails back and forth about the yes, same subject absolutely absolutely it's one of my biggest frustrations but and it's sometimes like well they don't want to be called and you're like yeah but come on you, you know why so easy. spend so much time on doing yeah. something that's like so time consuming just having like 15 emails back and forth because it's getting misconstrued or whatever it's just get mm-hmm. on a phone and speak to somebody in real life and, and yeah. sort it out in two minutes and it's much better and everyone's not getting the wrong end of the stick, and mm-hmm. you know, then it, it, everyone's on much the same more page. About it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because you know, on email and and you know all this kind of stuff, if you're from a different country with different language or a different culture, things can be misconstrued all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like I love the bluntness of working with Scandinavians and, and people and, and Benelux. I love that bluntness because you know exactly where you stand. Yeah, but people here get offended by that sometimes mm-hmm. you know in england they think people are just being really rude it's like no not being rude just telling just you how it is how it is Great. yeah yeah and i mean I, you find that in america actually as well people are pretty like you know that's how it is especially mm-hmm. in new york it's just there's no time for bullshit yeah and i love yeah. that i think that's the best way to be and not have, you know i have a scandinavian wife who offers the same kind of insight as well <laughs> <laughs> she's like just tells it how it is so you get used to that you know which i think it's just saves so much time it really does yeah. Well, I'm the same way, even with something as easy as just wanting to talk to my friends about something like, you know, I'm going to dinner Want to ask the roommates if they want anything, just a phone call is so much easier than getting a text or anything yeah. like that. Um, yeah. but anyway, that's just, that's just me being an old person, I guess. I don't know if uh, it feels antiquated for me to call people these days. People, people just want texts and emails and stuff, but whatever. I know it's, it's crazy, right? What, what is it about that? I mean, it's not even easier to text. No, it's easier to press so, like two buttons and answer a phone. Yeah, I just don't get it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel old school like saying that, but yeah. like, it's, mm-hmm. come on, it's not, it's not difficult. No. Anyway, no. <laughs> I mean, I make a point of doing that with clients, actually. Like, if there's something I just need to speak to somebody about, I'll just say, can I just call you rather than answering mm-hmm. that email? And we have a yeah. conversation about it. It takes five minutes to go through it. They're happy. I'm happy. Exactly. And everything, everything's clear. And, you know, there's no, there's no in-between. And there's no, like, confusion. Did they mean this? Did they mean that? It's just simple. And I think that's something if I could say to generations coming through now, like try and get your head around that as much as you can, because it just is mm-hmm. such a beneficial tool to have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess we can move on now to your now for nylon. We've kind of been a little down the road a little bit, but you're now of nylon yes. back on track. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what you're wearing these days brand style what what would you say how you dress stuff like that um i would i mean i'm not one of those guys that has to be wearing gore-tex jackets all the time that's for sure um it doesn't work for my lifestyle if that makes sense purely because i'm on a bike probably i'd say 80 percent of the time Mm. when i'm traveling I, i commute by bike i don't use the tube or anything like that so wearing like a 3l jacket is just too hot to be on a bike unless it's mm-hmm. pouring down with rain and then you know you're drenched on the inside as well as the outside potentially <laughs> um but so I, I try and like I, I have a kind of 
hangover from from the 90s still in terms of silhouettes and stuff and some of the okay. um, japanese brand influences i have which you know still for me is a huge influence on how i dress um you know there's brands that i just go to on a regular basis it, it, you know it doesn't have to be expensive for me it just needs to be a flex you know i love brands <laughs> like grimichi for example yeah you know, grimichi pants for me this that excellent to be on a bike with they you know just do the job you know, um, same with Nanamika, uh, which is a brand mm. we're looking at to represent here at Sane. You know, oh, I nice. think, you know, it's um, those brands that create product that you can wear on a day-to-day basis. It has elements of technicality and function, but it's not gonna, you're not gonna be sweating your ass off every two seconds. Um, you know, and then I obviously, I wear a lot of Harry Hansen, um, having worked with them. Um, obviously. I, <laughs> Uh, and, and Cota CL bags as well, which yeah. for me is a brand I've been involved with on and off for like 12 plus years now. Wow. Um, you know, going back to the early days of doing PR for the brand, working alongside um, Paper Rain, which was the brand, the umbrella brand that owned Demir Doma and Silent and Cota CL in those early days. Um, working with them on that. And now it's a, a kind of full circle thing um, that I'm doing. More, much more visual art direction work for the brand which I, I love it's an incredible brand and I think there's so much to be spoken about with this brand that still hasn't been discussed which is my mission to mm. introduce people to the wonderful way it's designed um, which is akin to like origami essentially with with technical nylons and, Interesting. and uh, incredible fabrics yeah huh. and the execution of the product is incredible um, so similar to Heli, you know, I, I like to work with brands that, that I feel I can bring something to the table with, um, whether that's from a product perspective or with a visual perspective or overall strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always going to be something there that's 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 key to start with. And um, yeah, it's 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 good to be on this journey with Heli as well because it's it's going into a realm where they don't generally put a lot of focus on. And that's the whole point of the project really is to, to bring all that technical knowledge and know-how into more urban based wardrobes mm-hmm. that still have an element of, of, of elevated design um, and functionality within that technical side and the fabrics that they were using the, in the product are all like sort of technical, like professional grade products that they use for all the like mountain rescue teams, whether it's mm-hmm. those guys, whether it's um, you know, professional workwear or whether it's um you know ski teams or whether it's professional sailing teams or you know race teams and stuff like that it's all the same level of quality that those guys use that we put into this product but it's product that can be worn in an urban environment or translated into an outdoor environment it works in both ways so you'll see more and more separates and everyday pieces and less jackets possibly coming through over the next couple of seasons because i feel that's how it needs to evolve um, it was a little jacket heavy to start with probably. Um, but that's what people expect from Eddie Hansen. And I think if we'd come out with a bunch of like everyday wear at that point, it would have been a bit difficult to kind of understand. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's developing nicely. We have some great stores for that, for that project nice. as well. And yeah. And then <clears throat> I guess, you know, there's, there's other brands that, I, that we represent here at Sane as well that I'm wearing regularly. Um, and it's nice to have that diversity of working with lots of different brands so you don't feel like you have to wear one uniform on a day-to-day basis you know that's a nice thing to have about working with multiple multiple clients yeah, um, lots of options in, yeah and i've worked in house before where you know it's the law you've got to wear the entire brand bit mm-hmm. top to toe, and it's, it's really difficult um especially if you like to sort of express yourself through the way you dress yeah, it's definitely, really hard definitely to gotta work. be limiting i understand yeah that. for sure nice. and 
you know, I hear that's a lot worse in certain bigger sportswear brands, but you know, mm-hmm. it's, I think I'd feel a bit limited by that, but you know, and then I'll do work with like Dr. Martins and people like that and, and wear that product. or so we'll be wearing some of the sneakers we work with here at, 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 uh, at Sane as well. Mm-hmm. We just started working with high tech again, which is a brand I'm, I'm really passionate about. And I think it can really make mm-hmm. a dent, even though in the UK, it, maybe there's a little bit of a stigma around it from being, you know, an older kind of dad sneaker brand from back in the mm-hmm. day. But I kind of like that, um, you know, and I like that. They, it, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, New Balance was a dad brand not long ago. True, true. <laughs> you know, I don't think that should limit it. But the fact that they've actually done some really great innovations in in in, uh, in, in athletics and in footwear development over the years with Vibram, without Vibram, um, mm-hmm. not a lot of people know about all these things. You know, like the RGS sole unit that, they, that we use on this project was developed by Hitech and Vibram together. You know, um, so there's lots of stuff people need to still find out about. And that's kind of my mission, really, to develop that dialogue. Nice stuff. Um, I have a question about one of your clients. Yeah. My question is, what does 11838 mean? It's alphanumeric for archive. Oh, cool. That's all I had. That's go. all I wanted to know. Exactly. Um, I mean, that's Beautiful. what internally the, 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 the project is called internally is called archive, um, yeah. which I, you know, it's fine. Um, but I felt like putting that on a jacket maybe was a bit strange and I, mm-hmm. I've always loved working with alphanumeric codes to just kind of purposely be a little bit mysterious. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's what it, that's what it means basically. Nice. I'm glad I could crack that code. Um, <laughs> I guess Is that you asking or somebody else. No, that's just me. I just wanted to know because uh, I'm looking. Okay. I was scrolling through the page where you were talking about it and everything that um, it stood for and the silhouettes and designs and yeah. technical, urban, whatever you want to call it, all that stuff. It's pretty. It's very, very cool. Yeah. I just didn't know what all the numbers meant. <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's, my yeah, curiosity. It's kind of like a, a discovery. Yeah, it's a discovery thing, but it, it's it's kind of like it's been a bit of a, it started as a bit of a black ops project internally mm. at Helly Hansen as well. <laughs> like there was just a small, small group of people within the company doing, working on this project. And it kind of, as soon as we started developing the collections after like, I'd say autumn, winter 21, maybe mm-hmm. it started blowing up a bit and um, people were really talking about it. And internally then of course it kind of created a lot of fuss and positive mostly, which was good. <laughs> um, but I think there was also a little bit of like, okay, well, what is this thing going to develop into? And started picking up all these stockists and doing stuff that other parts of Harry Hansen couldn't do. And, um, and I think that's where it still, it still sits, but I think there's just, there's a lot more we can do with it as well. And I think in, from a development perspective, and it's a great brand with really great people working there. Um, and what I love about them is they're not necessarily focused on fashion at all there. Um, they just they are focused on keeping people alive technical product um, that does mm-hmm. its job and that gives you a solid foundation and that's that's what they, they bring us in for is to bring that knowledge of the sort of fashion industry i guess or that ecosystem um and, and navigate that with them but you have to earn your trust with with the brand like Harley. you have to go in there make sure that people are comfortable with what you're doing and, and to build mm-hmm. that relationship with them and then you once you've got the trust then you can really start to kind of run with stuff Nice. Um, well, uh, <laughs> I guess on to, <laughs> I mean, there's no easy way to segue, you know, sometimes, sometimes you just got a hard push railroad you directly into the yeah. next segment. Um, we're going to move on to the future. 
we're going to move on to, okay. you know, you've already talked about wanting to work with certain brands. Um, we can also talk about where you think this whole scene may be going. Um, some brands that you think may be on the rise, anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, this is a, this is an interesting subject. I know it's one that's been bounding around many a podcast is like, you know, mm -hmm. Like the word the word gorp comes up a lot and yeah whether the, the gorp scene is 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 already hit peak which i believe it has if that's what you yeah. want to call the scene um but for, for me it was never about it being a scene to be honest um mm -hmm. it was about building something that was functional for urban and outdoor living but still had a fashion element to it and i think mm -hmm. if you think about brands that have been around for a while whether that's like acronyms of the world or even going back to his work with burton and stuff like it's it's not about developing something because it's a trend, which I think a lot of brands are jumping on. Um, yeah, and that stuff will kind of peter out slowly but surely. Um, but uh, I think brands that are are at the core of what they do, outdoor brands, they're always going to be in this area. They're always going to be working in this area. So it's not it's not a trend for them. It's it's, it's a way of life. Mm. Um, and if if you're somebody that does go outside a lot it's a way of life. So, you know, yeah. I think there'll be some point where people won't st will stop wearing their Gore-Tex jackets or their Arcteryx jackets. Um, you know, which seems to be the sort of standard bearer for this movement is, is the Arcteryx. Mm. Yeah. Um, the beta. Beta. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's probably the, the brand that might get come out of this the worst possibly. Oh really? Um, you think so? Yeah, because I think sometimes things can hit saturation point. Um, and I think when trends go beyond inner circles of, of fashion insiders and go beyond way beyond that, and, and they're mm. reaching the sort of provincial towns and everything else. Not that Arcteryx wasn't in those provincial towns because it is yeah. an outdoor brand ultimately. But when people's reason for buying that product isn't outdoors, it's just because it's cool. Um, you know, in that sense, then you start to become mainstream essentially. And that's mm -hmm. when a lot of the fashion insiders or early adopters want to move on to something else. If it's not mm. a thing about being a, a, you know, an outdoor product for them, which for some people, I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, yeah. I mean, there was, there was the whole like arc twizzing the shower thing, you know, that was yeah. short lived. There was only a couple of weeks, but I don't know. I feel like they're in a very interesting position where they tr obviously tried to capitalize off of the whole Gorbcore movement with, making their mm -hmm. system a stuff, which was definitely streetwear based. And something I noticed was when the first capsule came out, um, Cooper Gill, the former CD was talking about, you know, it's all about, um, activity. So the first, the first system a drop was all about rock climbing, bouldering, all that. So they were making thicker shirts. Mm -hmm. They were making baggier pants. Like everything was designed around rock climbing, bouldering activity like that. And then the second and third drops happened and they just seemed to be saying, oh, look at this, we're releasing this jacket in this new color. We're, we're making this in this new color. Um, so they, they kind of lost that message with the second and third yeah. drops. Okay. I haven't really paid too much attention to it. I know they dropped that they, they launched it after we launched this heli project. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe they're just trying to give buyers some alternatives, <laughs> um, which would make sense from a strategic perspective, because when the, your product is, is getting bought on such a level, you buyers will come to you and say that for the more select fashion stores, I guess would say, yeah. I need something different. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's when, I guess you kind of start making those those sub collections or capsules that can offer buyers 
something more exclusive that isn't going to be in an outdoor store um, or isn't going to be in like, I don't know, um, a mainstream fashion retailer or something like that. So I got, I get it. I'm going to get why they did it. I, do, I didn't really pay much attention to, this, to the narrative behind it, to be honest with you. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess if, if the narrative kind of went a bit shallow afterwards, then I, I, maybe it was just about strategy. Um, yeah, that's what I guess, it seemed you know, to turn as, into, as a, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, you've always got to have a reason for doing something, right? So like, but sometimes it's it's about, you know, I have to sometimes also speak to the guys at Heli about not every product needs to have a massive backstory. You know, sometimes it's about just creating something that's good and functional out of an amalgamation of different products. You know, um, it hasn't got to be, everything hasn't got to be traced back to, you know, North Sea, you know, ocean rig workers or um <laughs> yeah. you know ocean 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 sail teams and some of that mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff does come through that but I, I personally feel like pulling the best parts from all those different areas whether it's you know for example next winter we have a, a slope jacket coming in that has like lots of different technical elements from from mountain rescue teams even down to like radar um, location finders and stuff like that and um it's not about just dining out on that. It's cool that we have those those elements in there, but it still has to be a great product to put on and wear and, and use on a day-to-day basis as well. You know, I need to be able to wear that around town as well as go outdoors in it as well. So mm-hmm. and that's a, a real test. So I do a lot of wear testing on, on, on a lot of our products and, you know, with first samples and stuff like that, just to make sure there's, there's you know, it works essentially. Yeah. And like I said, I find it really tough to be on a bike a lot of the time. And I think urban mobility is a real a real place where you can make some serious wins because I don't think anyone's really developed great jackets on a day-to-day for commuting in mm-hmm. as of yet. Um, so that for me is a real kind of focus at the moment is creating products that can work on, on, you know, the urban commute and um, get you to the office without looking like a sweaty mess essentially. Um, yeah. But, you know, but you know, you can pull details from like, uh, you know, I picked up this great heli um, piece in Japan. That's an angling nylon hoodie. But the venting system on it, because it's basically mm. meant to stop mosquitoes coming in, oh. it actually is super, like, super ventile in terms of like how much sweat and air comes out. So it's actually okay. works as a perfect, you know, nylon windbreaker for riding a bike on. Yeah. So taking those ideas and switching them, flipping them on their heads, I think is, is super interesting. Where I'm going to be like really putting a lot of focus in the future. Mm. Um, I think if that was kind of the the whole point of this future conversation, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but, um, that's good. That's good. Just working towards yeah. real goals. You know, everything has to have a purpose and yeah. you like brands that have a purpose. I think it's good. Yeah. I think, you know, integrity around the product is super key and, you know, everybody doesn't get it right all the time. And there's things that sometimes like, you know, we have plenty of problems with jackets just being too warm, um, you know, because mm-hmm. they're, designed to be worn in the Arctic. So you don't yeah. work in like, Western Europe because it's just too hot, you know? So it's, there's a lot of uh, things you have to take on board and go, okay, maybe we need to bring the sort of insulation levels down on this and to make it more comfortable for people to wear. It's a constant uh, tweaking, constant like changing things to make them better. That's what kind of keeps me going on that. Mm. Nice, nice. Um, you got everything said that you would like to say about that. We can move on to your viewer questions yeah i think so uh yeah let's do it awesome so i have some questions here for you first one comes from robbie and four hc who just got done hiking the appalachian trail pretty cool um 
he would like to know, are there any smaller slash newer mags similar to IC that you'd recommend? Uh, they're more, I guess more like feeds coming through that are interesting. Okay. I mean, I, I work with, I work with Sabukaro in Japan as well. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a great title. It's, I'd say it's more of a cultural title than a kind of product focused title. If that's anything, they do do product dives and stuff, but it's not as, I guess, inventory focuses as I see. Um, but they do some, some great content and some great editorials and stuff as well. Um, there's a few sort of like, I mean, I'm really into sort of the way feeds are developing into media partners and media platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Samutara, for example, I love that sh- that long form Insta post yeah. with history, cultural references, all those kind of elements. That's that's what I'm really enjoying um, looking into more and more. Um, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's the tech hunter guys, I think, are developing a real tone of voice to what they do. Um in terms of like their visual direction and stuff and how obsessed they are with like macro detail and, and product and, and fabrications and stuff. Mm. I think they're doing some pretty good stuff. Um, and what else? Uh, there's, um, um, on the spot, you can never think if like someone <laughs> asks you what your favorite exactly. album is and you're just like, oh, I, can't remember. Yeah. I, I can't even think, I can't <laughs> think, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's there's just elements of people's feeds where they curate them almost like media titles. I think that's it. that's the future of how that side of Instagram can be quite creative and interesting. Nice. You know, people like Charles Unknown Spaces, for example. Ah, oh, yes, um, yes, yes. You know, it's always a pleasure to scroll through that feed. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that is uh, that is one account that you know you can just sit there and it's informative and it's also cool photos and that's it's informative and it's things that aren't. No shots at anyone who does this, but boring stuff like, oh, this is a pair of shoes that released. They use this fabric and this upper and this midsole. Like, that's kind of boring. I want to hear about that one guy who built fireworks and make a ladder. Like, that's what I want to see. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's what I want to exactly. see. Exactly. I mean, just just real inspirational stuff. Um, or just like think, weird you know, and interesting. Outside of, yeah. I mean, I, I probably would, if I was going to recommend stuff, it probably would be outside of the kind of fashion realm more so, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, there's certain, um, magazines more in the sort of outdoor realm that I, I quite like. Uh, I mean, I'm obsessed with certain Japanese magazines as well, like go out and stuff like that. Um, I can't read them, but visually they're just always, <laughs> they just know, look I, cool. I, I look, yeah. I mean, just, they just nail it, you know, whether it's like a bunch of dudes that like, uh, you know, the, the inside of their homes versus the outside of their like camping equipment and stuff. And they show how it's all kind of stored in their houses because, you know, people seem to have these really small spaces in Japan where they manage to fit everything in in perfect harmony, things like that. I'm, I just kind of love that shit. Um, I'm obsessed with cars uh, in, oh, yeah? in, a, in an unhealthy way, probably, <laughs> um, especially the four by four variety, old uh. and, and and new. Um so I spent a lot of my time just looking at stuff like that, vintage, vintage mm-hmm. stuff. Like my my dad was always a you know four wheel obsessive, mm-hmm. and um, it's kind of trickled down to my brother and I. But him and my brother, like, they're like they're like collectors now. They started with like oh, wow. one old M3, and they made a decent amount of money on that. And then they bought two other modern classics, and then they kind of built that and slowly but surely bought more and more cars based off the profit they were making. And yeah, they've they've made it into a kind of business now. Buying wow. like modern cl- classics, it's kind of mad, and they do that on the side of their day jobs. Yeah, but it's um, yeah, I, I love seeing how things from like twenty years ago become design classics and things like that. Mm. And 
I spent a lot of time reading about things like that and how culture culture turns something that was kind of like not really appreciated in its time into into icons. Um, yeah. That's kind of nice. where I spend a lot of time. That, it seems that hustle runs in the family as well while you're talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I got to thank my dad for that, to be fair. <laughs> he's, he's like the ultimate hustler. Um, yeah, he's always got multiple stuff on the go. I think Love I can't remember how many, <laughs> how many businesses he has going at the moment. It's, it's pretty crazy. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he's essentially like a construction guy, though. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he has... Um, he's been a builder or plumber for a long time. And it's just kind of, you can, you can go into different directions with those kind of skills in a similar way to I have, I suppose. I'd say like, I don't know anyone else in my family that works in the creative industries. It's usually pretty much construction um, mm. or, de- or demolition in some cases. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, I guess the similar similarities in the hustle that we all go through self-employed obviously as well. Mm. Um, Obviously. I think that's yeah. some, something that runs in the family as well. Maybe we, we don't work well under people. I don't know. Um, we like, or we like the freedom of being able to kind of do multiple things. Maybe that's the case. Yeah. Nice. Uh, next question from tectonic.theory. They would like to know, what's your favorite thing about getting to work with Sabukaru and IC? Favorite um, thing. Pretty broad. The people, what's your favorite thing? The, the people yeah. yeah they're just great guys um they're super enthusiastic passionate about product in a way that they need to be passionate about um the content in a way they need to be but there's no there's no attitude there's no there's no mm-hmm. kind of um you know every, everyone's super chill and open and that's what i love about it it kind of feels like you know the same kind of people i used to network with doing music that i used to enjoy making music with it's a similar similar way I look at it really, you know, and same with photographers that I work with. Every time I work with a different photographer, the music we make will be different to if I work with another photographer, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. It's not music. It doesn't have a sound, but it'll have a look and feel of its own. And I kind of associate it with music in that sense. Um, Because, you know, as a producer, you would work with lots of different artists and that Mm. particular artist, you develop a sound specifically for him. And it's the same with photographers. You develop a particular aesthetic together which if you work with people on a regular anyway. And, um, and I, and I like that association and just the fact that these guys are just open to stuff that makes sense to them, obviously in terms of like the brands that we work with. And there's just a lot of crossovers of interests as well. Nice. Beautiful. Um, next Josty would like to ask, what is the dream brand for saying to work with? Uh, whoa, tough one. <laughs> hmm. Hard hitters now. Hard hitters. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't really say this without it being a little bit of a declaration of war on another agency who reps them. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a big Oakley fan, as you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a big Oakley fan. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's just I've always got a pair of Oakleys on somewhere, and I put a lot of them in my shoots as well. I'm just a massive fan of the brand, and I use it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um whether it's on a bike or running or day to day, I just, I've loved the products for years. Um, and I have some, some vintage stuff as nice. well that I've kept, kept from the old days. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, a killer brand. I mean, I think there's a lot to that brand that probably I wouldn't enjoy working with, but just as a brand overall, I've always thought it was a sick brand. Um, yeah. who else, who else? I mean, that's a tough one. Um, 
I'm sure there's a couple of uh, Japanese brands. I mean, I was a big Jun Takahashi fan. Um, mm-hmm. I always admired his, his, his amazing work. Um, but I don't necessarily know if I want to... Sometimes you'd like something so much, you don't want to work with them because it yeah. might kill it for you. You want you know? to keep that You want to keep that idea in your head of what they yeah, are. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, like I don't really want to work with cycling brands mm-hmm. because it's my thing that I do yeah. outside of work. <laughs> so if it comes into my work life... It, I mean, yeah, it's not like the end of the world, but it takes things into a different place. Yeah, it might um, poison that experience a little bit. Yeah, possibly. It's not to say I don't love the brands that we work with here, but yeah, mm. I think you've got to be careful to, to manage that relationship you have with things that you really love. Yeah. From a brand perspective. So yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's there's lots of other brands that I, I would like to work with as well. But uh, I, yeah, I mean, I either kind of know them already or have... A relationship with them even if i don't necessarily work with them mm-hmm. i mean there's some brands that i think are amazing coming through there's designers like sage nation who i think has got a lot of talent and mm-hmm. can go a really long way and has a really nice perspective and point of view and his products great to wear um and i think what he does brilliantly is balance that element of his japanese heritage with his english heritage um and really bring something together that has elements of all the elements of things that I like in clothing, like silhouette, some elements that are te- like technical in silhouette, but not made in technical fabrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he just puts it, puts it all together really well. I'm looking at his page right now. I didn't know they existed. That's going to be a, a follow yeah, right there. Thank you for that. But nice. you know, he has a lineage also, you know, I know he used to work with, with, studio and Nicholson before he went out on his own and stuff. So mm. I think there's, there's definitely elements of, of things he's learned there as well. And, but I think overall, I think he's really developed a, a quite polished aesthetic and tone of voice of his own. Nice. Nice. Uh, Jossie also he's asked, a great guy as well. <laughs> yeah. Jossie also asks, uh, add me to flow list, please. And thanks. So that's for you to say, you don't have to, you don't have to tell me just, uh, so Jossie. Say wants- that again. Jossie wants to be put on flow team. He wants uh, free stuff. So ah, okay, okay. As well, does everyone. Yeah. These influencers, man. <laughs> these, these influencers. Uh, yeah. Shame on them. To get at me, I'll, I'll make the necessary connections where I can. Yeah, beautiful. You good man. Um, Ali, final question. Good friend, mm-hmm. Ali George Hinkins would like to know. First of all, he says hi. Hi. Cool. <laughs> Second of all. <laughs> He says, um, when is the website going to be finished? <laughs> uh, the infamous website. Yeah. I mean, I, I built a website for this heli project like a year and a bit ago with mm-hmm. some of my, some of my um, coding guys and stuff. Um, it still isn't live. I'm sorry. It needs to be live. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just not because of COVID, I guess, more than anything else. It's just not mm-hmm. been a priority because it's just been a battle getting things out of factories yeah um in china so that's been the priority but we're, we're getting there it's coming soon nice. i'll let him know sounds good sounds good i'm sure i'll be happy to hear that um that's all the questions i got for you if you have any questions for me um go ahead and ask them now or we can just wrap things up uh yeah you don't have I mean, to have I, questions for me that's that's not required no, I mean, I'm I'm kind of curious kind of why you asked me actually more than anything else. About what? To be to be on here, to, to come on here. Oh, um, well, I've heard about Sane 
communications for a while, seeing people posting about it, been following that page. And then um, Allie messaged me, you know, mutual friend Allie messaged me and said, <laughs> have you heard of Graham? And I said, no. And then he said, oh, well, he's been listening to TP. He told me the story so that you've been listening and that you'd like to come on. So I took the initiative to message you. And I saw that you were actually following me first. And I felt egg on my face. Yeah. It's like, man, yeah, yeah, I didn't even know go. this guy. I didn't even know. Yeah. And uh, I, I, so yeah, I then we went. Looking. And then, what are you saying? I'm always looking. Always, yeah, yeah. Always you're always watching. The, the watcher. Yeah. <laughs> then I got a message exactly. from Ali once, once I scheduled you. And he said, who do you think you are going behind my back, making deals for the podcast without me? Which I thought was very funny. <laughs> Because he wanted uh, he wanted to intro us, but I was like, he already followed me. He already knew who I was. I don't I don't need you to. Well, yeah, because I, I saw you and you and Ali have your your own podcast, which uh, yeah, I yeah. think is quite fun, funny actually. It's a um, it's a good time. It's just us talking, really. If anyone yeah, doesn't listen, technically professionals goofing around and like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um. So I'd listen to that, and we were chatting about that podcast. So that's when I started following you, actually. Nice. Um, Very nice. So yeah, that that's. Okay, that's good to know. Thanks, yeah. Ali. <laughs> Thanks, Ali. Yeah, put us put us in touch. Um, I, I owe everything. Good. I owe everything to Ali. If you're listening to this, I owe everything to you. That guy's so switched on, man. He's just got. He's crazy. He's, yeah, he's like, I don't know when he sleeps. Actually, he just seems to be like <laughs> yeah. constantly on, online doing shit. So yeah, he's, I can uh, attest to hats, that as well. Hats off to Ali. Hats off to Ali. <laughs> He doesn't need that. His head's already too big. Like you don't have to give him any more <laughs> ego. Uh, well, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. Cool. cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Graham. Pleasure, man. Um, yeah. Anytime. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, get to know you a little bit better. Um, I know that the the viewers also wanted to see you on here. So, and I know Ali's going to listen to the episode 30 times so he can hear <laughs> us say his name a few times. So thank you again. Exactly, exactly. No, my battery's about to die on my phone, by the way. So oh, I need to there you go. Pl- plug that in pretty soon. Otherwise, we're going to be saying a <laughs> premature goodbye, probably. All good. All good. Um, well, anyway, again, thank you. Uh, pleasure my to pleasure. talk and keep in touch. I'll talk to you again sometime soon, hopefully. Cool. Nice one, man. Thanks. Bye bye.